This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make wind turbine lightning protection easy. If you're a wind farm operator, stop settling for damaged turbine blades and constant downtime. Get your uptime back with our strike tape lightning protection system. Learn more in today's show notes or visit weatherguardwind.com slash strike tape. Welcome back. I'm Alan Hall. I'm Dan Blewett, and this is the Uptime Podcast, where we talk about wind energy, engineering, lightning protection, and ways to keep your wind turbines running. All right, welcome back to the Uptime Podcast. This is episode 43, and on today's uh, episode, we've got a great guest, Angela Kirchmar from Firetrace is here, and she's going to talk to us all about uh, fire suppression technology in wind turbine nacelles, uh, well, and just in wind turbines in general. So, Alan, this is a great conversation with Angela. What were some of your takeaways from it? Well, I didn't realize the number of fires that were happening in wind turbines. It's a lot more than you think just because it's hard to keep track of them. They're random events, and so you just don't see them all the time. But fire traces suppression systems are amazingly, one, simple and effective. And and, and so as, you, as I... As Angela was describing how the system worked and how it was laid out and how it uh, didn't affect electronics afterwards and it didn't infect any employees that were could have been in the area at the time the fire had started and the suppression system kicked off, you realize like this system is really well thought out and effective. And it's surprising that it's not used in many more places than it is today. And, and so the, the hope is that uh, fire suppression becomes standard in wind turbines as we go forward because it's just one of those systems you really don't want to do without. Yeah, well, and we've talked at, at different points uh, about insurance claims and force majeure and all these different aspects of owning and operating a wind turbine. And as they get uh, bigger and more expensive, and especially as they're located way offshore, it's just really hard. And this is one of the kind of not funny, but, you know, she just talked about, hey, if you don't have a fire suppression system or if you have a, a system that alerts you but doesn't actually put it out, you're just going to get a notification that your turbine is going to burn to the ground. Like It's just like you're just not going to be able to get there and, and do anything about it. Uh, it's just going to burn out of control if it, if it gets to that point, which is crazy to think about because these machines are so expensive. Um, so it was, it was really interesting to hear just about the solutions, the way they've evolved, um, how it is pretty friendly. Cause like you said, uh, if you, you start to think of some of these, uh, retardant foam situations where they're just like filling a room full of foam, but that's not what they do at all. They do something that's way cleaner and simpler and, and, uh, safer than that. So it was, it was a really interesting conversation. Well, I, I think as you, as you listen to the episode, you realize that, uh, fire safety is just one of those aspects that we need to be implementing. And I, I hope that, uh, a lot of operators around the world hear this and can reach out to Firetrace and, and understand how that system works and how it can be used on their particular site. All right. So again, our guest today is Angela Kirchmar. She is a global sales manager at Firetrace In International. She's been with the company 12 plus years. She's pre uh, previously a senior business development manager, and uh, she just has a ton of expertise. We read a couple of her different articles, uh, watched one of her webinars. She has an article at uh, powerengineeringinternational.com. Uh, called The Burning Issue of Wind Turbine Fires, also another great article she penned on wind power engineering, the true cost of wind turbine fires and protection. So really just an industry leader and, and uh, just very, very knowledgeable on fire suppression technology and uh, just the statistics, all the different stuff involved um, as she just helps Firetrace, you know, spread their message and, and, and their solution for just keeping these assets running. So without further ado, we're going to kick it to our conversation with Angela Kirchmar from Firetrace. All right, Angela, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're excited to have you today. No, thank you. I appreciate the invitation. So we're going to start pretty general here and because uh, I think this is something that flies under the radar and this is something Al and I talked about on the podcast before when we actually mentioned uh, your, your company Firetrace is that wind turbine fires a they're spectacular i mean not in a, in a positive way but they're i mean wow what a thing to look at when they do happen i know one happened recently um but they also don't seem like they get as much news or as, as much press 
as maybe they are actually as frequent. So there's obviously thousands and thousands of, of wind turbines in the United States and all over the world. But how many wind turbine fires are there in the world each year and how many in the United States? So it's a really good question, and you're right. It is spectacular when you see a, a video showing you know, a catastrophic fire event with a wind turbine. It's pretty significant, and it does make the news or YouTube, for example. But the, the studies show um, that there are about 1 in 2,000 wind turbine fires a year, and th- that study mm-hmm. varies, though. You could see you know, some reports say one in 10,000 turbine fires a year. So the reason there's such a variance in the number of fires reported is because there isn't a central repository of information. There isn't one way that a fire in a wind turbine would be reported locally, for example, to local fire officials. Some of the, um, some of the early investigations that I did actually in calling California fire authorities and asking them how many incidents they'd seen, the only way that they report a wind turbine fire is calling it a building. So you can imagine how many buildings you have in the state of California if the way that you're reporting a wind turbine fire is the same as the way that you would report a building fire, there is no differentiation. So um, the, the difficulty in understanding how frequently the fires occur is really about the industry being willing to share the data and and there's a reluctance. I'm sure you can appreciate that, like most, that you don't really want to talk negatively about certain things that happen. But as an industry as, as a whole, um, you know, power generation appreciates the use of you know fire safety and fire fire protection. So it, it's no different, really. That's such an interesting distinction that I never thought about. That you know, if you think of a solar panel on someone's house, like a solar panel is a device, right? That's sitting on someone's house or any other, you know, you have a, you know, a pot belly stove is a device in your house that produces heat. But a wind turbine is your, and this, I don't think this was to your point, but it is probably in that unique, strange category where it's, it's a structure, but it's also a device. It's also a machine. That's weird that California reports it as a, uh, as a, as a building. I mean, uh, what, what would your company, if, if you guys had your way and you could make the new standard, would you just say, Hey, call it a wind turbine or is there some other category that it would fit into that maybe like maybe with other things? I mean, I think if you called it a wind turbine, that that would be sufficient, right? There's enough, especially in the state of California, there's enough wind turbines in certain areas, you know, they're not in every part of California, but in certain areas like Tehachapi, for example, where those fire officials could easily differentiate between the two by just simply calling it a wind turbine versus a building. And wind turbines are certainly nothing like a building. So the way that you're applying safety and response to those, as you called it, a device, the way that you're responding to those would be far different than you would respond to a building, although they treat them you know, maybe a little bit differently now, but they don't treat them any differently in terms of how they report them. Huh. That's really interesting. So... As far as the one in 2000, one in 10,000 number with the reporting really varying, do you have an idea of, of which is more accurate? Or, I mean, do you, at, at Firetrace, do you take a, like a, an average of the average? Where do you guys fall on that? So I think the one in 2000 is a, an accurate reportable number. We, you know, obviously have information in the industry for those that are looking to protect their equipment or have had an experience where it's not necessarily a, a news reported event that you see, like we were talking about earlier, a catastrophic event. It could be a much smaller fire incident that has a result in a failure in a wind turbine that's costly, but doesn't make the news. It's not that, again, large catastrophic event. In that case, you know, there's more frequent events, but there isn't, a, again, there's no central repository. Even with us, we don't get all those phone calls. So even with us, it's difficult to say what the exact number is. We, we've we worked over the last probably six months to collect data um, from insurance companies and things like that, those that would have good data, especially on their own customer base. And we're waiting for them to kind of release that information to us so that we can make that more public. But the industry as a whole just needs to get more comfortable in talking about it. And, and if we do, then things will just, it'll just move the system along a little bit smoother. Well, let me ask a, a, a question that's tied to the, how many turbines have usually catch fire in a year. What is the method of extinguishing a turbine 
today because you watch these videos on YouTube and it seems like it's just to let it burn to the ground or to let it self-extinguish. Is there even a way for a local fire department, say in Kansas or Oklahoma, to extinguish a, a, a fire right now on a wind turbine? The simple answer is no. If you don't have active detection and an active suppression system in, in the nacelle or the down tower space, there isn't anything that you can do today to extinguish a fire from outside. You, you simply do, as you just suggested, stand by. Uh, you do debris management, which is really important. Obviously, you have a turbine that's 300 plus feet up. You're just managing um, what, what could be falling, and you hope that it's not a windy day. Obviously, wind turbines are put into windy spaces, and so you just hope for a not-so-windy day so that you can manage the debris falling. But that's basically all you can do is watch and watch and wait. Because we have seen on, in some news articles where they talk about the area around the wind turbine farm catching on fire from the wind turbine. So they've had large brush fires, particularly where it's dry, like in Texas, uh, where some of that debris hits the ground. And, and not only do you have a wind turbine problem on fire, you also have... Uh, large swath or acres that are burning at the same time, risking other assets on the site. Is is that more of the norm that, especially because they're just the remoteness of many of these wind turbines, if 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 I'm out in West Texas and a wind turbine catches on fire, there isn't like there's necessarily going to be a large group of firefighters. It's going to be the local group of firefighters, volunteer most likely, to go out there and try to extinguish that fire is it is it just at that point it's just management just don't let it, it go any further than it it, it should is that where we're that's at today exactly right wow yeah that's okay. exactly right so you, you know you are looking at a volunteer fire service typically because you are in a remote location you're not in a city so you have the volunteer fire service responding as they can with the equipment that they have available and typically it pulls in a number of local fire locations and local fire authorities to come in and help manage what's happening. But yes, indeed, it, it's, it's, um, it's small and select few that are actually able to respond and respond in a timely manner. So, you know, luckily there hasn't been uh, a large catastrophic wildland fire caused by a wind turbine, but you can see large swaths of acreage lost. You know, you mentioned Texas. There's, there was a fire recently with 3,200 acres lost. Wow. And that has to be managed by the local fire officials to ensure that it doesn't spread. It's, it's significant. And, and your business is sort of tied into the code of fire safety. Is Are there existing codes right now that drive any level of additional fire safety compliance or or even on the on the volunteer fire department do they have special training to deal with wind turbine fires they must have some sort of training that goes on I, i'm not even sure what they what they know before they show up on site yeah so there is some you know working at heights and training that's being conducted now for some local firehouses although i will say you know depending upon the location and the number of turbines in the area that's going to drive the the response of that local firehouse to train their personnel on what to do. But again, most of it is just simply managing and um, ensuring that there isn't a fire spread beyond the turbine itself. Wow. Um, you do have to, you know, you do have to be careful, obviously, what you said too about the spread to other um, other towers or other areas within the space. All, all that all that makes sense. It just seems like we've been in the wind turbine industry in the United States has been going for 30, 40 plus years at this point. It, it, we haven't really moved the marker that much in terms of fire safety and fire suppression on wind turbines, right? We're, we're basically where we were in the 1980s, roughly. Yeah, I will say that you'll see some local authorities requiring additional uh, fire safety measures. For example, in California, uh, there are projects where there is a you know high fire risk. There are projects that require additional fire detection and suppression, similar to some of the solutions that FireTrace offers, to ensure that there isn't that additional spread. Some of those regulations also exist in New Hampshire, for example. They have anywhere in a forested area that you might also include detection and suppression actively within the within the nacelle. And in some cases in the down tower space, we find uh, in Europe and Germany, it's the same it's the same case. So I think there are some authorities that look and understand the value and the simplicity of just adding detection and suppression 
you know, at the onset of a project versus trying to do it later. It's a lot easier to do in the beginning stages of a project than it is later. And there are some authorities out there that are certainly appreciating that. Yeah. So the, the existing code structure in the United States is particularly diverse. And what I mean by that is that adjacent towns can actually have different fire codes. So it is developed locally. And I was involved in a, in a project that in the United States where we were touching a different bunch of different fire codes in, in relation to lightning protection. And I was shocked that it really wasn't controlled at the state level. It's really can be town by town by town across the United States. And so as a, as a being in that fire suppression safety business, every little town across America or a large city like New York city is going to have some different angle on it. How does that impact fire safety at your level? as you try to address all these varying factors and different codes and different people you have to deal with? It does become about education. So in, in some cases, the local authorities don't even know it's an issue until it's an issue, which is, is quite typical in, in the fire industry, that it's uh, reactive versus proactive. So there's a lot of education that we do to you know let people know, one, that there is an available resource for detection and active suppression, uh, that having that resource available is really important. So it is about it is really about the education of the local authorities as well as, as um, wind farm owners. But you you touched on something really important that there's code structure that's available for for most applications, like a building application. And you know one of the things that you have to be careful of, and that as an industry we want to be careful of, is that you don't look at a wind turbine like you would look at a building because it's not an occupied space. So there are you know, there's the NFPA 850, which has recommendations for wind turbine fire protection. But like with any power generation, you look at that and it's a recommendation. So then it's up to the local authority to evaluate and interpret what that means for their area and decide how how much do you want to require that local wind project to include fire detection, fire suppression? Could it be additional water features, those types of things. But it is really open to the interpretation of the local authority to decide, which does create, I would say, some confusion because, again, you don't want a wind turbine to be considered a building. You really want it to be its own standalone power structure. And how do you manage that in terms of fire safety? It does leave it to their, really, it's to their discretion. And that drives back into, again, on the reporting side, because you have so many localities making independent decisions, and you're right, they're pulling in different NFPA code as they see fit, uh, that just also drives into the reporting side of that. You just don't see a national database of fires for wind turbines. There's no way you can Google that right now. There's no way you can access even state databases so much to say, how many wind turbine fires has there been in Ohio this year? That's That's not a searchable item today because of the way the fire departments are are organized, so to speak, and it seems strange in a post um, 9/11 world that fire departments aren't a little more integrated together and standardized to some level. But here we are, and it, it, it from your business standpoint, uh, does that just drive the complexity of trying to get the message out that you have to just go to locality, 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 and and keep preaching that message of hey, wind turbines are just like a large high tower building that's kind of what they are they need some level of fire suppression fire safety is that what happens out in the real world so from from our perspective it's more important that we're educating the end user owners of of how to incorporate fire detection and suppression into their into their equipment whatever that asset might be and for from whomever they're getting it from the you know the end users and the owner operators all also have an appreciation for safety. You know, they want safety for their staff and they want safety for their equipment. Having the availability of a solution for them at the onset of a project is is really key. So over the last 12 years since I've been working with Firetrace, that has evolved where, you know, initially there weren't necessarily options that customers can select. And today there are options to select. And I think that has come a long, long way not necessarily based on a local authority saying you must have, but more based on the end user owner operator realizing if I simply add this safety feature, I'm going to remove this additional risk, which is really, really important. Sure. Well, that drives into as we get to 
uh, essentially more and more turbines, the wind turbine market is not going to decrease. It's only increasing as we go along, and it's getting. Uh, we're going to larger turbines now offshore, and and as uh, the the expanse of where we're putting turbines has grown substantially in the last ten years. How does that change the, the the fire aspect? And what I mean by that is, are we seeing more specific types of fires because the turbines are getting larger? Are they generator related? Are they gearbox related? Are they electricity power distribution related? How and with because we have so many turbines now, what are those key fire risks risk points that exist today? So that's a good question. And there are, you know, a number of areas in any one nacelle that could be a fire risk. I think the the leading cause of fire in a wind turbine is lightning, which I think you guys are, you know, you have a good understanding of that. So I'm not going to touch on that. The second leading cause of fire is an electrical malfunction, whatever that could be, an arc flash of some sort, um, just a malfunction within the component. That's the second leading cause of fire And it's also something that we hear most commonly is the area of concern. So where you have uh, the power connections coming together in the converter space, in the transformer space where you can have those connections as well generate an arc flash. Anywhere where the kind of power is coming together and being moved is where you could have a potential failure. And that's not unique to wind. That is generally just power generation as a whole. So those areas of protection like the converter cabinet or capacitor cabinets, those are some of the areas that we focus on. Also the transformer space, you know, we we learned just recently in some of the conversations that we've had with DNVGL, for example, that, you know, up tower transformers have a high fire risk. And what, what does that mean? Well, it's what they've seen in terms of frequency um, in, in the cell investigations that they've done. Wow. Which, you know, again, it's where the power comes together and where it's being moved, how it's being converted, where those connections are. Those failures aren't aren't unique to wind. It's just where they're placed, you know, some 350 plus feet in the air. That creates a different complexity that you don't have in other power generation facilities. And could you touch on the lightning aspect a little bit? Obviously, we do talk about lightning a lot in this show, but for anyone who might be new and just tuning in, maybe this is their first episode, um, is, is lightning causing fires because it strikes blades, because it strikes the nacelle or a specific spot within the nacelle itself? So what I've heard and what I've learned so far is that it's mostly the, the blades, right? That the blades have, they're obviously turning and moving and there's lots of things that happen when, the, when um, there is weather in the area. But a, a lightning strike is one of the, again, it's one of the leading causes of fires, although I'm not an expert on the lightning side of things, so I'm not sure I'm going to do a great job of describing that for you, unfortunately. Alan, do you want to weigh in here? <laughs> well, sure. There there are really two big areas, and as Angela was saying, there's the, the blades that can catch fire, which I think is not super common as much as you you're shoving huge amounts of electricity into control cabinets and distribution centers and overwhelming electrical components which and then cause those components to fail and to fail in a in a in a way in which they're overheating and then all the catastrophic things happen after that and so the lightning is the trigger for the event, but a lot of times, especially in the nacelles, lightning has intended to hit the nacelle as much as it's pushed so much energy into to electronics and circuitry that it's overwhelmed it, and that starts the fire. Well, so my next question here, because I like the way we're progressing, uh, how does the fire progress within? Because when you think of a wind turbine, right, like the the blades are composite, but you know the towers are are, are steel or steel and concrete or concrete depending on where they're made. Um, and of course, the nacelle is going to be mostly like heavy machinery. We think you know solid metal. So, Angela, where where do the fires originate, and where do they really ex- like? Is there a, a major accelerant within the nacelle itself? Is there a part of it where it's like we just hope? You know, the, the arc flash doesn't hit this spot because then it doesn't seem like there's a lot. I guess what, what I'm getting at is it doesn't seem like there's a lot of, you know, like in a house, there's, you know, a, a, com- or not, a non-commercial house or a non-commercial building, there's wooden studs, right? And so if you fire gets to the curtains, if it gets through the drywall, gets to the wooden studs and then it's over, right? But is, is there a part in the, in the wind turbine that really burns well? 
Well, it's interesting. So if you if you have a fire in an electrical cabinet, the thing that continues that fire would be all of the plastics that are inside of that cabinet. So as it starts to heat and warm, things start to melt and drip, and you you then could have situations where dripping plastics and dripping metals, especially if it's a hot enough fire, are dripping onto the fiberglass, and then you have a fiberglass nacelle that then propagates into a much larger fire. So it typically starts off quite small, even as you described what happens in a, um, a lightning event inside of a component, it starts off inside of a component and then eventually will spread beyond that if you don't have any anything to have that early detection and then early suppression of that space, right? Well, sure. Everything just gets overheated, right? The, I, I do think you're right. In the Inside the cabinets, you have a very unique situation where if you do have a fire start in there, there are plenty of things that will uh, will eventually burn. It's just a matter of time and heat and energy. And the the issue uh, in the in the nacelle itself, because the 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 whole shell of the nacelle is made out of fiberglass, epoxy, or something that's that's burnable. Not the fiberglass, but whatever that resin system is. Once you start that on fire, it's pretty hard to get that out. Uh, those kind of fires don't settle down on their own. It's and like on a, we do a lot of work with aircraft. On aircraft, there's a lot of testing that the the components and the plastics and the things inside the aircraft don't drip or catch fire or cause smoke. That's on an industrial side, that's not the case at all. Those those components are chosen, those plastics are chosen because of the cost and the, the lifetime durability of those components. There's not a lot of testing done on the fire side to suppress a fire. So if a component lets go inside of a turbine, there's really no way to stop it besides some some sort of early detection system. That's really the only way to do it. Cables also play a role too. So if you think of the plastics burning, cables that are you know carrying all of the things within the the wind turbine, those cables also, even though they would have you know a high fire rating that they shouldn't burn if you have burn. And so they also sort of, they they trail throughout the entire wind turbine nacelle and then down you know down the towers for example. And so. Once you've once you've started those on fire, you're you're in a it could be a, a serious situation, really. That's right. That's right. It's all a matter of temperature, right? Everything burns. It's just a matter of what the temperature is, and if temp- as things get hotter, particularly in like a, a fiberglass epoxy fire, those fires are hot, and they'll tend to want to burn anything else that's around them and catch them on fire too, because it's just a matter of time. It really is, as we've seen, it's just a matter of time. Okay, so we've kind of so we've kind of settled on that. You know, unless a fire department has a significant amount of equipment and they have this active detection system where they can get over there really, really fast, this fire is either going to A, burn itself out, or B, you have a suppression system in there. So so how does um, your company, what, how does your suppression system work? What kind of, uh, how does it, how does it put one of these, thing, these things out and how long does it take to put it out? Yeah, so the, it's early detection. So we've talked about that already. Early detection inside of a component; those those two things together are are very important to ensure that it doesn't spread spread beyond. Really, so we have uh, a linear pneumatic detection tube that is routed throughout a component. That could be an electrical cabinet. That could be inside of the transformer space. That tubing will detect high heat or flame, and when it does, it ruptures and triggers the event to um, activate the suppression solution. So that could either be through the tubing, the tubing can be an active detection and suppression delivery method, or through strategically placed nozzles in the transformer space, for example, where you really need to focus the agent delivery to the top side of the transformer. When you have that early detection, having it inside of the component and that early suppression uh, cooling environment happening within the space, you have an effective means to suppress the fire. If you wait for a, a much larger fire for detection, or if you only have detection, you've lost the element of suppression. You no longer have the means to actually suppress the fire any longer if you don't have the active suppression system. Yeah, that's a that's a rough text message. Hey, hey, John, your uh, your wind turbine's burning down. <laughs> Just wanted to let you know. Nothing that's you can do about you, it. That's but. what you get. Now you know it's happening, <laughs> and now you can watch it. Angela, how does that pneumatic system? work I, i'm just trying to envision this there there are lines that are routed in the nacelle that are filled with air is that the the concept yeah so it's all based on pressure so you have the it's a it's a linear detection tubing it's routed inside of a converter cabinet for example and only inside of the converter cabinet and then you have a suppression uh, cylinder an extinguishing cylinder 
nearby, let's say on the side of the cabinet, where, where there's a fire, the tubing will rupture and the agent will deliver via the tubing. So the key is to have the tubing inside and closest to a potential fire source as possible. So you serpentine the tubing throughout a component to give it that much earlier detection and then active agent delivery. And then the, the tubing itself, uh, senses basically melts, and then the, the the agent is released inside the component inside the cabinet. Is that the or is there are there special nozzles or I, uh, just physically what does this look like? So inside of the cabinet, you would have the tubing only. It would be a tubing based system, tubing throughout, serpentined throughout, and then the agent would actually deliver through the tubing because it forms a nozzle in the tubing where it detects the heat or flame. Okay. And then right. in an open space like the transformer space, you would have the same tubing, same detection method, but the agent would actually deliver through strategically placed nozzles. So you can direct and fill the volume of the transformer space much, much more effectively with the strategically placed nozzles. And it's in an open space. So you want to make sure that you're directing the agent to where it needs to go. Sure. So absolutely. So that wherever there's heat, essentially you're going to put suppression on it. Heat is where that tubing is going to detect. Heat and open flame is where that tubing is going to activate. And so it will rupture and trigger the system discharge. So that's a relatively simple system. How reliable is that system? It sounds like there's since there's really no moving parts there. There are no moving parts, which is what makes it, you know, it's really, really good for the wind industry because it doesn't expect anything from the wind turbine to function, which is important. So there's no power required for the system. The The piece that's also important is the connection into the turbine controls so that you get the signal that something has happened. But again, it's not activating the fire suppression system. The system is active all on its own. So, you know, at, at the start of the wind turbine, when you're re-energizing the wind turbine, that could be a more common time that you could have an issue, a thermal event in the space, the systems are always active. It's not looking for power of any kind to tell it what to do, which is really, really important. The only thing it does then is sends a signal to the turbine controls to say, the system is detected and it's suppressing and shut down, because that's obviously another really important part too. Effective suppression is the shutdown of the component. So essentially, to the controller in the turbine or the SCADA system, however it wants to interface, it's just saying that hey, the system is ready to go, it, or or the system has pressure. Probably, it, it, it's just saying the system's pressurized, everything's a okay. If the pressure were to drop, it sends an alarm off saying, hey, I'm delivering suppression somewhere in this turbine. Come check me out. That's right. Is that the sort of the logic of it? Okay. Wow. Yeah, that's right. So it's monitoring, you know, it's monitoring the pressure from a service point of view and it's monitoring the pressure from an activation point of view so that you know that the system, it's continuously monitored at all times. This is brilliant. So what kind of service do you need to provide to that system once it's installed? Is, is there really any service just to make sure that the system is pressurized? Is that it? It is, it is an active fire suppression system. So you do have service requirements. It's relatively simple. It's inspection of the system to make sure that it has pressure, but you do have to do that on an annual basis, inspecting the tubing to make sure that there's not any unforeseen damage, because again, the tubing is an active detection system. You want to make sure that there's not damage happening to the tubing other than in the event of a fire which is, is key. But the, the service intervals, is it's pretty simple. It's, you know, every six months or annually, you would inspect the system, but you can do it in conjunction with other already um, operating service operations and maintenance um, activities that are happening within the wind turbine. So in conjunction with that. The person who does that servicing, does it have to be a local fire official or is it is it the wind turbine technician who's normally on site that does that inspection? Who Who's involved in that? So you can have a combination. In some cases and in some places, it's okay to have a local technician be the one performing the service and investigation, the inspection of the systems. And in other cases, you might have to have a local authority or someone who um, is licensed to perform a service and inspection. It, every, every state varies, which I think sure. we were talking about before. <laughs> Code enforcement is tough. So in this case, in most cases, it's it's the service technicians that are doing the, the inspection and the service. That's brilliant because that's exactly the way I would want it set up. And is there is there a way that if the system does go off and there happens to be technicians 
around that turbine or in the turbine that when it goes off. Is there an audible system that goes along with it that says, hey, we got to fire somewhere in this turbine? We need to get out of here? Yeah, so there is. So one of the things that we do with the systems to ensure the safety of staff if they were physically present in the space is to, we do some specific calculations with the agent and the volume of space, knowing that there's a lot of airflow and ventilation. There isn't a concern necessarily for the safety of staff in the space in the event of a discharge of a system. Let's say if it was an accidental discharge of the system, um, there isn't any concerns for their safety and it's based on those calculations. So we keep those things in mind. Temperature matters, um, airflow and ventilation matters. It also matters when you're trying to effectively be suppressing a fire within the within the space. So those calculations are really important. Yeah, you actually beat me to a, a question, which was because Al and I had talked about this on uh, our aerospace podcast. We had talked about foam and some of the advancements in, in fire uh, retardant foam in airplane hangars. And people have died where the, the whole hangar goes off by accident and someone gets stuck in there. And that's an awful way to go. But it sounds like you've got that already solved where that's just not an issue. Yeah. I mean, you, when you're using a, we use clean agent systems. There are, you know, a number of clean agents out there. The clean agent system that we, we uh, use currently for the wind industry is a, an agent called 3M Novec 1230. And so it is, it's intended for use in occupied spaces. And again, we're talking about local application of the agent. So we're not talking about flooding the volume of the nacelle, like you were just describing in a hangar, you're talking about flooding the volume of the cabinet within the nacelle or gotcha. the transformer space within the nacelle. And, you know, the presence of personnel, if they were there, based on the calculations, they wouldn't have any safety concerns about evacuating the space uh, safely, which is, I mean, really, it's so important, especially in, in the wind environment. And so I want to double back to why companies hadn't been installing these in the first place. So Obviously, in one of your articles, you talked about the cost, uh, the cost benefit analysis of it and how with wind turbines getting so darn big that it doesn't make sense to not have this in there. Right. So my question is, who's on the hook for insurance? Um, you know, if their if their wind turbine catches fire and then if we had that situation where, you know, burning debris caught, um, you know, the, the landscape on fire. Is that the wind turbine? I mean, is the wind turbine operator going to get sued for that? Is that their, uh, is that a financial burden for them as well? If they cause a sort of, you know, a, a fire on the, uh, you know, wildfire? It, it does. So it varies. There isn't one answer. You know, it'd be easy if there was just one path, but you're right. The cost of the wind turbines are increasing. The, the, the value of the assets are increasing. So if you're talking about a million dollars a megawatt. If you have a wind turbine that's four megawatts, you have a four million dollar asset times however many you have right. at a at a at a fleet, and it can vary in the U.S. Maybe much larger than in Europe. Th that cost is significant if you have a loss. So you know what we've learned and what we've found is that if you do have a loss of a a nacelle, the cost of replacement, the cost of downtime. The cost of the fire investigation, for that matter, could be somewhere between seven and eight million dollars before you have that wind turbine back up and operating again. That's if you have a complete catastrophic failure. That's significant. And who's on the hook for that? That's a great question. It could be it could be the end user. It could be the insurance company that is you know partially responsible for the the payout. It could be the OEM that's also partially responsible for the payout and the repair and the replacement. But it varies. It depends on the age of the fleet. It depends upon the agreements that are in place between the uh, the owner operator and the OEM and then their own insurance company. So in any case, it's very expensive. So, you know, how are insurance companies responding to that? They obviously have an appreciation for, you know, fire safety measures like we're talking about. I'm sure the same applies to your, you know, the the uh, lightning equipment that you also supply and support. So I think I think that um, there is an appreciation there, but what does that or how does that translate to an end user or an OEM in terms of, you know, a return on investment? It depends, and I know that you know nobody wants that answer, but today that truly is the answer. It depends. It depends on the customer. It depends on other risks that they've had. If they've had other fire events, then they might be considered high risk and as a high risk insured what other things are you doing to ensure that that doesn't happen again i think there's there's a lot of players um that play a role but 
In terms of the availability of an option for protection, I think that was one of the things that, you know, 10 years ago was lacking. There wasn't an option for somebody to consider the inclusion of any kind of measure, frankly, you know, talking about arc detection, condition monitoring, fire detection, like we're doing with, you know, an active suppression system. Many of those things weren't available 10 years ago as an option, and they are today. And I think that's, you know, that's where the industry is evolving, which is really, really good. So along that line, I mean, I think some of the, the, the curious insurance language, and this is what we talked with our guests from, uh, from DNVGL a couple months ago, was, you know, what is force majeure and when is it not force majeure? And so you start to look at the causal chain of these things. So like a light, lightning strikes in a cell, and the cell catches on fire, debris falls down onto the brush, brush starts a wildfire. Like, is that force majeure? Did nature cause that? Or did the did did man cause that by putting this wind turbine up? It seems like a like a really complicated question. Are you are you seeing are you getting questions like that? Where like who 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 caused this? You know, where where is the chain of uh of causation? You know, it's interesting the way that you just presented that. And I think I'm gonna need to use that as an example when we're talking to insurance companies with some of our customers <laughs> to say, okay, who's re- at what point are you responsible so that we can help to alleviate this for yours and our customer? I, I don't know, I don't know that I have a good answer to that. Um, from an insurance perspective. Again, they appreciate the idea of having additional fire safety measures. And some of that is because of the payouts that they've experienced themselves over the last 10 years as they've grown. And as we've seen even just in this last year, the frequency of uh, wildfires in California, the cost of that is significant. Yeah. And how and who lives lost ultimately too. ends up right and who who ends up paying the the cost of that, it really does then come back to you know, those end users maybe that haven't even experienced a fire, but obviously somebody has to cover the cost. And where does that go? We've seen an increase in premiums over the last few years by about 30%. And some of that isn't necessarily related to what's happening in this industry. It's just what's happening overall. Where are the catastrophic failures and where is the payout? Yeah. You know, you have to balance the value. It's definitely complicated. Because you, you see that, you know, well, A, you know your wind turbine is going to get struck by lightning every year, right, Alan? So it, it's oh, going to sure. take a certain amount of lightning strike. So if you know that and you know that a lightning strike could cause a fire and yet you chose to not have fire suppression, you know, was that negligent? Was that a negligent decision to leave that out? Like, I don't know, but, you know, it seems like a lack of forethought maybe, but... It is. It's just a really, that's a really complex question. You know, I wonder if the industry realizes how frequently lightning happens and that the result is a, you know, could be a fire, right? I don't, I don't know if, if the industry as a whole is fully aware of even that specific, that one topic. Mm -hmm. Well, when you talk about one in 2000 catching uh, fire every year, like you said, in like in California, there's thousands upon thousands of them. So then if you're the state of California, you're like, all right, well, we know there's, 20,000 wind turbines in an area where there's a lot of combustible brush. And we know just based on the odds that 10 are going to catch fire this year. Are, are we okay with that? That seems, that seems like pretty simple math, I, you know, especially in, in a state like that, that's been hit so hard by it and lost so many lives from it. Yeah. I think they'll start to pay. It'll, it just brings more attention to it. I think that's what just happens again. It's more of, you know, a, a reaction versus a proaction. And I think, Generally, that's just how the industry functions, and yeah. so, and that's not the wind industry. That's just in, in, in life. as a whole, yeah. as it relates to fire safety. You put out the fires in front of you. Well, well, how does this work? Uh, do you see a difference in offshore versus onshore? Obviously, uh, there's no, not going to be brush fires uh, in the middle of the ocean, but <laughs> the wind turbines are way more expensive, right? So, yes. can you tell us how offshore, how is the offshore market compared to the onshore market right now for fire suppression? So, offshore, you're right. Offshore, it is extremely expensive to, you know, put into place an offshore turbine that's, you know, 12 megawatts, um, and the output of 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 power that comes from that is significant as well. the The industry is responding like they do for onshore. So there's 
um, all kinds of condition monitoring. There's art detection in some cases. There's there's smoke detection and active suppression that can be a part of it, but it, it's still, again, an option to the customer to incorporate. It's not necessarily a standard offering, but I will say the cost of downtime, while, it, you know, while you're not concerned with a wildfire, the cost of downtime is more significant in the offshore side because of access to the space. So you obviously have to have special ship, special personnel, specially trained in order to access. You have to hope for good weather, which, you know, you hope for good weather onshore, but it's a little bit different offshore. So there is a, you know, there there is a need to ensure that the uptime is there. It's just a little bit different. And does that, does that change the way the installation is onshore to offshore in terms of the time it takes to install it? It's just, just on a 12 megawatt machine, you just need more suppression system, more plumbing, more stuff, or is it relatively the same? The fundamentals are roughly the same. Yeah, so the risks are the same. Obviously, the size of the nacelles could be far more significant. So you're right, you could need more, you know, you might need more additional tubing, for example, um, maybe a little bit more agent uh, for the space. But ultimately, it's the, the areas of concern are the same on and offshore. How you protect them is essentially the same as well. And so if you come in post-installation uh, of the turbine itself and you want to add fire suppression active fire suppression to a, a turbine, what are we talking about in terms of time to, to do that? And, and is it a week? Is it a day? Uh, what's all involved in that? So it's relatively simple. If we think of the areas of potential ignition, if you're talking about control cabinets and the transformer space, for example, so you have two areas of protection and two different system configurations that are used to protect that space, it would take you maybe two days to do an installation as an what we would call you know an aftermarket or a bolt-on solution once the turbine is up and running it's a relatively simple implementation so if you have one to two days that includes you know weather for that matter which is also a factor when you're doing any kind of implementation in an active uh, wind turbine fleet but it's relatively simple to implement and does firetrace actually send trained personnel to install it or is it like in a lot of other fire suppression systems local locally trained people uh, do the installation it's a it's a combination right so firetrace is a manufacturer of the solution we aren't necessarily an active installer but we do have you know partners that we've worked with over the years that help us to implement the systems that are trained obviously in in firetrace equipment and also trained in climbing and um, working at heights, which is really the most unique part of, you know, being mm -hmm. in a wind turbine is that you're able to safely evacuate and if there is something that goes wrong. And are any OEMs, uh, wind turbine OEMs, installing fire suppression system at, in the factory, like before it gets on a truck and goes out to the site? Is, are, is that something that's happening today or is it just all aftermarket installations? No, it's a combination of both. So you, you have, you know, there are some large OEMs that have it as an option and some large OEMs that don't currently have it as an option, but they wow. certainly have, you know, it's all customer driven. So you as sure. a customer have the means to say, this is a thing that I want. I want, you know, this, this detection and suppression, or I want, you know, this condition monitoring system, whatever it might be, the customer is really going to be the driver, but all of them have you know, options to consider in terms of active suppression as well, which is good. So say a, a system detects a fire and it goes off and it you know, sends its payload of suppression out. What happens next? I mean, is so in the aircraft world, a lot of times those aircraft are damaged in the hangar. Right, right. Alan? And, and, and oh, like, yeah. like that stuff was, especially back in the day, used to be really toxic and uh, if it touched an aircraft part, it had to be basically thrown out and, you know, a new one thrown on. So is that the case here? Is anything that the, the suppressant touches, is it going to have to be replaced? Obviously, there's going to be some damage because a, a fire started, but how much needs to be replaced and, and how much uh, can be saved? Well, I was going to say the fire, whatever the fire was, is obviously the first part of damage. So if you mm -hmm. have the suppression and it actively suppresses it, especially in that in the early stages, there isn't anything that you'd have to replace that wasn't damaged by the fire. So the agent that we're using is meant to be used in electrical components. It doesn't leave a residue. There isn't any uh, cleanup of the of the agent itself, which is really really important. So you you would, you know, you would need to replace whatever 
created or caused the fire and then replace the fire suppression agent as well as the tubing in the area where it was detected and utilized for detection. It's a relatively simple, it really is a relatively simple change out. We have a, you know, a really good example of a, a customer in California that, you know, had a fire in their converter cabinet and they were up and running the very next day. Replaced the system, replaced the component that failed, and they were they were right back up and running, which is a really good it's exactly what they wanted. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> the first time it didn't go that well. <laughs> is it like a is it like a carbon dioxide? Is it or is it because uh, in my head I've been picturing a foam this whole time, but it sounds like that's oh. not really accurate, is it? No, it is not a foam, and that that's a really good question. So it is a clean. It's considered a clean agent gas, and uh, okay. uh, what that means is it's electrically non-conductive. It doesn't re- leave a residue after t- discharge, and it's actually, you know, like I had mentioned earlier, safe for staff if they're physically present based on the way that the calculations are done for the space that we're protecting. So there isn't anything left over from the agent itself. Um, Obviously, you're going to have, you could have fire effects with the agent, but again, you can easily replace the component that caused the fire and then get right back up and operating again. There isn't going to be other failure points, which is good. Yeah, definitely not like a foam system. That can be very damaging. Yeah, with, uh, you know, you have a bunch of Wintex with a a 48-pack of bounty paper towels wiping down all the foam, (laughs) you know, 200 feet up in the air. No, uh, that's definitely not what you want to see. Nobody wants to do that. Great. This thing didn't burn, but now we're going to be here for three days. We'll be out wiping, yeah. Yeah. You know, if you were using, like, it's the same if you were using a, a dry chemical powder, you know, an ABC dry chem uh, handheld extinguisher. They don't typically use those in the wind turbines as well. They use a clean agent gas, like a CO2, so that you avoid that very scenario. Uh, makes sense. Makes sense. So if, speaking of you personally, what do you, uh, and you don't obviously work exclusively in the in the, the green energy industry, but um you know, a lot of people that service wind turbines or, or attach them in some some way uh, professionally, you know, they have a, a emotional attachment to green energy into our planet. Are, are you, um, what a, how did Paul Geit put, are you a greenie, Angela? Do you? Uh, yes, if that's how you describe a greenie, yes, indeed, I am. I think, you know, we all need to power our electronics on a daily basis in our homes and our buildings. And if we can do it in a clean, green way, I, I don't think there's anything better you could do. Yeah. And it, it just seems like a lot of the people we've interviewed have, get a, a lot of a strong sense of purpose from not just their individual solution or their individual job, but just from uh, also just being a part of a, a, a good solution for the planet, right? And for providing green energy for the future and being on the forefront because, uh, you know, wind power is a significant part of the energy grid today. And it wasn't like that 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And that's changing a lot, obviously, with electric cars and all these other technologies. It's uh, I think it's probably feels pretty rewarding to be a part of that where you're helping these things run more efficiently and helping uh, green energy be a, a major part of our daily lives. It is. It is very rewarding. I will say that. I think, you know, the ver- first time I ever went to see a, a wind site, I Sadly, I fell in love with how wonderful it looked. And I thought, oh, this is great. Look at how cool this is. Yes, we need to save these and make sure that they're (laughs) operating at full capacity at all times. And that was, you know, 10 years ago for me and how how different the industry has changed just in 10 years. And, you know, the wind industry has grown to be not just a renewable, but really a part of the overall portfolio of many operating power generation companies out there, which is significant. It's wonderful to have seen it evolve like that. So as we start to wrap up here, one of the questions I like to ask our guests is for any advice, uh, obviously, um, you have a, a significant role within within Firetrace. Uh, what advice would you give to um, young professionals who look at what you've done? And they say, wow, I'd love to be in her position at some point um, and really make a name for themselves, not only in the, in the green energy industry, but just, you know, in the uh, the industrial sector in general, um, what advice would you give to, to young professionals coming up who um, want to make a name for themselves? Well, I think you first have to look for something that you really enjoy, which, you know, that sounds silly, but it's important. If you really enjoy and um, have a passion for whatever it is that you're doing, you're going to do a much better job of it. And I also think that 
you do have to be tenacious in any job that you do. And so again, if you have that passion, you're going to be able to drive through some of the things that might typically shut you down uh, and keep you kind of moving in the same direction. Find that purpose and, and stick to it. I mean, I, I have a ton of questions about the way the systems work uh, and sort of where the next step is in fire suppression, particularly for wind turbines, because it seems like it's just uh, uh, so many turbines have essentially zero fire suppression systems in them. Where are we going? Are we going to get to a point where we're going to see at least some minimal level of fire suppression as a, particularly as the turbines get older and probably have, or more at risk of uh, having a fire. Are we, are we getting that way? Are the insurance companies forcing the marketplace that way? Or are we just as turbines exit out because of age, the newer ones will have fire suppression systems in them. You know, it's interesting because I think there's a lot of things that could drive the incorporation, some of it being the local authorities, as we had discussed earlier, or um, insurance companies doing things to incentivize the inclusion of fire detection and suppression. But I think, you know, generally people's experiences in the industry are also going to be a big driver. How, you know, have you experienced a fire event? How do you ensure that that doesn't happen again? I mean, that's the typical driver for most inclusion of fire safety as a whole. Uh, insurance companies, I will say, have the appreciation for the inclusion of fire suppression. Will they require it? That's going to be dependent on the customer and the customer's existing risk. So there isn't kind of a one one answer, one path for how that's going to happen. I think as an industry, knowing that we've gone from not necessarily even having an option to currently having an option and some you know being implemented in some cases as a standard previously, then right. It, things are evolving to the point where customers will be able to say, I want or I need, and there's an easy solution to that, which I think is important. But you don't see in the next couple of years uh, the need for or the the motions towards a national standard for wind turbines and fire suppression. Is, is that even on the radar screen right now? No, not today. I think the closest that you get is what the NFPA has put together with 850, which is the recommended practices for you know power generators. And that, that's where wind turbines and solar applications fall in line with all of the other power gens. So as the industry continues to grow and see themselves as you know general power generation, some of those safety measures are really more of a standard organically that, that you know it's not a question anymore it's simply that you just include and I think that's I think that's what we'll start to see um, as time goes on is that the industry will continue to evolve and, and look to have those safety measures as just a standard so the NFPA is obviously in the United States is that sort of viable for fire safety for all kinds of aspects and the way that the the local code officials rely on it is they basically incorporate those NFPA uh, suggestions as standards. They say we, we're going to apply them and enforce these as a standard. Is 850 going to become that sort of standard where the local code officials are going to go, okay, there is a standard. I've done my Google search. I know that there's a standard out there and I'm going to apply that to these next generation of wind turbines that come into my county. I think it's the closest thing we have today. So, uh, you know, there are some local authorities, as we talked about earlier in Germany, where you know, it is required that fire detection and suppression be a part of the wind turbine. How it gets applied is open for interpretation, but right. that it's required. So I, I do think that the, the 850 document is what is official today. Will other standards evolve over time? Perhaps, but today there isn't anything out there. And as part of this, as a wind turbine asset owner, manager, you already have a whole list of things that you have to know, right? From employee handbooks to safety to government and local government officials, all these different things. 850 is going to become one of those standards that, as a site operator, I'm going to have to know something about, right? Do, do you, is that where we're going? That we need to have some basic understanding of what 850 is saying today? I think so. I, you know, it, it's hard to say you're right that the, the operators all have a lot to think about and a lot to be concerned with. But as, as the incidents continue to occur, the, the means to solve the problem also have to happen. And so if, you know, if you look at NFPA 850 recommendations and how, 
how fire detection and suppression is handled with that platform, they're going to be looking for something to give them the answers. And so far, that's what we've got. Well, Angela, this was a great talk and we really appreciate you coming on the show. I, I know I personally have learned a lot. And uh, I know Alan, you're asking, Alan, what's the, I, Alan, I think still has like a, like at least two dozen <laughs> questions left on just the engineering oh, yeah. of these systems, but. We'll have to have a talk offline. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, Alan wants, uh, he, he's going to use his erector set to build his own. Um, <laughs> but uh, we really appreciate, appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anywhere you'd like to point uh, our listeners to follow you on the web or your company? Oh, yeah, that's great. Well, I appreciate being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was really fun. And uh, yeah, we can have offline conversations as well. But if you go to our website, firetrace.com, there's a number of links on there. Um, you can certainly you know, reach out to us that way and, and we'll, we'll answer any additional questions that come up from anybody. Including all right. Well, we'll put links uh, in the show notes to Firetrace and all of their uh, social media accounts. And again, we want to thank uh, Angela Kirchmar for being on our show today. And we will see you here next time on the Uptime podcast. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up today's episode of Uptime. If you're new to the show, welcome. If you're a regular here, thank you for your continued support. Please subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from each show. For Alan and all of us at WeatherGuard, stay safe and we'll see you next week. Is downtime causing you financial pain and putting a stop to your power production for months on end? It's no secret, lightning strike damage is a major cause of wind turbine downtime. This damage is preventable with our easy-to-install strike tape lightning protection system for wind turbine blades. Our incredible engineering, build quality, materials, and edge sealants withstand up to five times more abuse in the toughest weather and lightning conditions. And we've got the research to prove it. If you're tired of constant downtime, we can help. Reach out to us at weatherguardwind.com and schedule a free call. We'll get your uptime back in no time.